0: scripture reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians 16. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord, as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now, concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urge him to visit I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. O Lord, come, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is the word of the Lord.
1: All right. Thank you, AC. Good morning, everybody. Really good to see you. Uh, Good to see some of you back uh, for the first time in a little while as some of your restrictions loosen up a little bit. I'm happy for you, and it's really encouraging, not just to me, but to the rest of our church family to have you have you back here let's pray and we'll get right down to work father we thank you that you are the ever chasing god Uh, we need to be chased because we're runners we ran in our rebellion from you and even now that we're adopted in sons and daughters we still tend to run away from you rather than toward you so thank you for chasing us pursuing us Jesus, we thank you for doing the work necessary so that we could be adopted in as fully loved, accepted, affirmed, and forever kept sons and daughters, kids in the family. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for bringing our hearts to life and for opening our ears to the Father's voice. And we pray that you would do that again for us this morning so that we can receive our Father's word and respond to it by faith and live lives in response to the good news of the gospel. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Hey, so PCS season's coming. I just talked to somebody outside who is 92 days away from getting on that airplane, and uh, we've—it's kind of been a weird year and a half, anyway. It's kind of been abnormal, so we've said goodbyes and stuff like that. But uh, we're going to say a goodbye this morning. We're going to say goodbye to First Corinthians. It's kind of crazy because it's been about a year. Remember, we started First Corinthians pre-Rona lockdown, like the real lockdown, and they're like, man, this book's really important. We want to wait till we're back together in person as a family to keep trucking through it. So we kind of put it on hold, and we're going to wrap it up this morning. Uh, We're going to wrap it up. So I feel like I'm saying goodbye to a, a good friend Sometimes our good friend has said things that we don't want to hear or said it in ways that we don't want to hear, but maybe that's what makes, makes it such a good friend. It's been, it's been really good for me, and I hope it's been, it's been good for you. Our series theme all throughout this letter has been gospel formed, becoming who we are, a united family in a fractured city. And this morning, what we're going to see from the final chapter of this letter is we become who we are as our father's love Leads us to two things, relate meaningfully and give generously. The heartbeat of this chapter is found in verse 14. It's a very short statement. It simply says this Paul says, Listen, fam, let all that you do be done in love. Let all that you do be done in love. Sounds like an invitation, it's really a command let all that you do, everything you say, every interaction with another person, let let love be not only the motive, but the way in which you interact with other people. Now, in the New Testament, all through the Bible really, but especially in the New Testament, what we learn is love is not less than my affections, right? It will include the way that I feel. That's really important. God doesn't dismiss our affections. Um, They matter a whole lot. So it's not less than how I feel, but what we also see in the scripture is love is not primarily a feeling, right? It's not primarily a feeling. So it includes my affections, my feelings, my emotions, but it's not primarily a feeling. Love is an act of the will, plain and simple. Love is a choice. And again, it will include our affections, but at its core, love is an act of the will, a choice. Also, what we see in the Bible, when we're commanded to love, the command is not about my capacity for love. Like, the Father's not looking at me saying, you got this, like, dig down deep, the love's inside, you just gotta pull it out, like, you do this. No, rather, when we're commanded to love, it's it's about the capacity of God, the Holy Spirit, working through me. And we know the kind of power that's at work in us, right? It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us, so it's resurrection power. Now, I mean, just, just again, like the Bible always tells us the truth, so let it, let it say what it needs to say about us this morning. Our capacity to love people sincerely, like really, really love them, is so weak, the same power that raised a dead person from the grave is what's needed to kind of resuscitate or resurrect your ability to love another person well. Not very flattering, is it? But it's the truth. We have such a minimal capacity for this kind of love. However, the good news is, while our capacity is limited, our Father's capacity is limitless. So the work of the Holy Spirit through us is a limitless capacity to love others, as He calls us to. A few weeks ago, we came to understand the uh, love in this way, as the Father turning toward us for our good, especially when we didn't deserve it, right? The Father turns toward us for our good. He could show us judgment, but instead He shows us mercy in Jesus, so to love, then, is to turn toward another person for their good. And we know that once Jesus, once the Father turned toward us for our good in Jesus, he never turned away again. He never turns his back on the ones he loves, right? So to do all things in love is a command, a choice, to turn toward other people for their good, even if they are undeserving. So the gospel would tell us, okay, we receive the Father's love. We are restored and made whole through that love. Now, again, admittedly, being made whole is a long process, even lifelong sometimes. So we're, not sometimes, it is lifelong. It is a lifelong process. So we're restored in the Father's love. And as we are, we live increasingly in response to that love, depending on the Holy Spirit, And when we live this way, our Father's love leads us to relate meaningfully and give generously. Relate meaningfully and give generously. We're going to see both of those themes in this final chapter, these closing remarks. Uh, Let's take the first theme of give generously first. When shaped by our Father's love, we will be an increasingly generous people. And we're going to see four vignettes of generosity in this short chapter. Uh, First, we're going to see Paul talk about generosity toward other churches outside of our own church family, and then he's going to talk about generosity towards missionaries, and then he's going to talk about generosity internally, like towards other members of our own family, and then he's going to wrap up his talk about generosity by uh, calling us as a church family to to look around the family and to publicly affirm or commend those members of our family who are setting the pace for us. As it relates to generosity. And I'll I'll show you where he's at uh, in the text with that. So let's start with generosity toward other churches. I mean, you notice Paul opens up this section by writing about a collection for the saints, right? Taking up some money for some Christians somewhere. Uh, We learn who those Christians are in verse three. We learn that Paul was working to raise money for the church in Jerusalem specifically. It's a big project, right? It's not just that the church in Corinth was, was raising money for the Christians in Jerusalem. He, in fact, he told them, he's like, look, I already talked to the churches in Galatia, another province, what we're going to do. And I want you to do what, I, what, what you know, exactly what I told them too. So basically, Paul was rolling through all the provinces, sending letters to all the church, any church that he had been involved with saying, hey, we are going to be all in on raising money for the Christians in Jerusalem. Why? Well, the church in Jerusalem was in serious need. I mean, real poverty. You could even say systemic poverty because there were some, there were some political things going on with Jerusalem and Rome and all of that. So they were, they were being occupied and uh, it's not, not going well. So economic need there. But also as Jewish people turned to faith in Jesus, they were largely ostracized by their Jewish community. So maybe some of them lost their way of life or their ability to provide for their family. So this entire church was really suffering in a, in a state of poverty. And so what was Paul asking the church in Corinth to do? Look, verse two, he says, all right, fam, on the first day of every week. So that would be Sunday, right? On the first day of every week, when you gather, I want each of you to put something aside. Everybody in the family is going to give, and I want you to store it up. I want it to be a line item in the church budget so we don't lose track of this money that we're raising. This money is going to the Christians in Jerusalem. Now, a brief historical note about what Paul says here. Notice he said, on the first day of the week, meaning like when you gather to worship Jesus um, on a Sunday. Just a brief historical note. This was a practice in the very, very early church, especially as you read Acts, you can see this. Is happening. And so Christianity obviously has very Jewish roots. So, in more Jewish communities, they would still be gathering on Saturday. But in contexts like ours, that we're not uh, the Jewish roots, were not there, the Gentiles like us. The gatherings were happening primarily on Sunday mornings or the first day of the week. And there's a reason for this. Some people suspect, well, it's kind of because of Rome's involvement, like the church and state thing was blurred and Rome kind of made Christianity this official state religion and Sunday was the day. But while there were some political things going on years down the road, that's not really what was in the early church, what was happening was Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week, and so it became this very natural expression for, for the community of Jesus followers to gather on the first day on a Sunday and to worship and to celebrate Jesus. And so that tradition has carried forward for us uh, these 2,000 years. All right, we close the history books back to the text. Paul says, Anyway, when you gather. I want each of you to give and I want you to save it up. This is going to be a family effort. Okay, so then the natural question would be All right, Paul, how much from each person? Like, what are we talking here? How much am I on the hook for? I mean, you know it, as Christians, we're always like looking to the Bible for, uh, man, we got the tithe, right? And it it kind of becomes this baseline for us of this minimum, like, we give 10% or. Fill in the blank. Honestly, if you go to the Old Testament and you add up all the offerings, you're like popping north of 30%, right? But I want to give you a bet this morning. I want to bet you, uh, and if I'm wrong, I'll take you to lunch. Which may be blurring some lines. We're not gambling here, it's just a little friendly wager. Anyway, all I'm trying to say is go through the New Testament and uh, try to find where a a, a number, like a 10% rule, actually dictates the way Christians are called to give. I'm going to go out on a limb and say you won't be able to find it. You won't be able to find that, that, that giving principle from the New Testament. What you're going to find, though, is more aggressive than a 10% baseline. It's a radical generosity. Look, look here. Paul says... Simple words, he said, How much per person? As he or she may prosper. In other words, as God gives you financial gain, as God gives you capacity, I want you to give generously in correspondence to direct correlation to whatever it is God prospers you in. It's going to be different for everybody, right? It's going to be based on your regular income, which we all know what everybody's regular income is in, in this room, right? It's all over the internet. We all know the pay charts. So it's based on your regular income it's based on your investments, your side hustle. You all have, everybody has a side hustle now, right? Whatever thing you're selling or party you're throwing, right? Your side hustle, your crypto gains, your upcoming Biden stymie check that you're all amped for, your tax refund, however God prospers you. Paul's saying, give generously according to your capacity. Give generously according to the capacity that God gives you. And give regularly give through your church family, set it aside. So as a family, you can absolutely make it rain on other churches who are struggling financially. That's what he's calling them to do. I mean, I just want to affirm you as a family, you guys do this. And as a family, I mean, you, you have a track record of giving generously. You, you always have. And because that is true, I'll give some examples later. We as a young church family have always been in a position that we have been able to make it rain financially, if you will, to give generously to other churches here in Japan and in other places who are suffering or struggling financially. So I want to commend you. One of the clearest evidences in scripture that a heart is now in submission to Jesus and being shaped by the gospel is this evidence of of generosity, like a desire to give in this way. And you guys have it. I want to commend that in you. So we give generously toward other churches. But Paul said also, not just toward other churches, but toward missionaries. Uh, Look at verse five. Paul lets them know that he's coming for a visit. Now remember, he originally started this church. Paul started this church. Uh, He's coming for a visit. He's still a bivocational guy. Paul's got his side hustle, he works a job on the side to earn income. But in different seasons, he's still dependent financially on churches like the church in Corinth. And then in verse 10, he says, look, Uh, I'm also sending Timothy, who's a young pastor that I'm mentoring. I'm sending him to you for for a short visit as well. And in reference to both the visits, his own and Timothy's, look at verse 6. Paul says, look, one of the reasons I'm coming to you is I need help. I just, look, I make tents. Maybe I hadn't sold enough tents. Maybe the price of tents had dipped. Like, who knows? He wasn't making enough money. He's like, "I I need help. And then in verse 11, when he talks about Timothy's visit, he's saying, look, one of the Timothy's coming for some specific purposes. One of the reasons Timothy is coming, though, is he also needs help. He needs some financial support. And so I want you to help me on my journey and I want you to help him on his way as well. Now, if the gospel is not shaping us, we would loathe those requests. Uh, my older brother's a, a missionary in Italy. So my family and I have lived here as missionaries for a while. So there's a little term my brother and I use with each other. It's called moochinary, not missionary, moochinary. And uh, I'll tell you some stories about all that later. But if our hearts are not shaped by the gospel, that and to some degree is how we can come to view missionaries, Right. But when our hearts are shaped by the Father's love, we don't view these types of things as duty, but as privilege. It's not something we loathe, but something we long for, something we desire. Now, sometimes these were one-time gifts, and other times they were ongoing support. And we do the same as a church family um, at our year end. For those of you who are part of our family, like we're fully transparent with the budget and. Um, You know, we showed you charts, I think in December, that demonstrated that somewhere around uh, 30%, almost a third of our budget or our giving internally, we're able to turn around and send back out the door to support missionaries and church planning and other churches. And that makes me really glad. That makes me really glad. I want to see that number continue to climb. Even as we raise money for a building, guys, building's not who we are. It's just a tool that allows us to carry out our mission here. And it will not crowd out our generosity Uh, to other churches or to church planting missionaries. Here are a couple of examples. Um, Most of our giving actually goes to GTO, Gospel to Okinawa, our initiative to see church plants uh, planted here in Okinawa and to come alongside the existing church in Japan here in Okinawa and to love and serve her well. Uh, Almost all of the pastoral couples pictured here in this uh, photo are, maybe all of them even, they're bivocational. The culture in Japan does not really allow for churches that are able to financially support their pastors. Almost every pastor has to side hustle to earn an income for the family. There's not a rich theological education that's available right here in Okinawa. There are a lot of ways in which we can come alongside the existing church in Japan and make it rain on her for her good and her flourishing. So GTO is an example. Uh, then there's Moe. Moe's a missionary that we support. She uh, serves college students here in Okinawa who go to America. Maybe they hear the gospel and they come back to Okinawa and they have a really hard time uh, becoming a part of a church family. Maybe they fall away from the faith, whatever. Moe's heart is for the college students here in Oki. A couple of years ago, she left to go to graduate school back in the States. Uh, She's working on her uh, theology degree. And so we're like, man, maybe we stop supporting her while we're in school. And then we kind of stop mid conversation. We're like, what are we talking about here? Like, we're committed to Moe's success, right? And we're committed to the mission that Moe has here in Okinawa. Why would we stop supporting her while she's going to graduate school? Now, again, back to that moochinary thing, lots of churches would be like, We're not going to fund your graduate education. What are you talking about here right now? No, when the gospel shapes us, yes, we will gladly fund your graduate education because we know her heart is to further her quip herself to live as a missionary, and she's coming back here to Okinawa. So we're pressing with her. Uh, Moe is a hero in our family. And then there's Joey and Giselle. They live in Tokyo. Uh, He pastors the bridge in Tokyo. They got that 7.2 earthquake last night, and she said it was insane. She said it was the scariest thing she'd lived uh, lived through. And she's lived through some stuff. And so there they are. We support them on an ongoing basis. But also, remember last fall, kind of in the midst of Rona, they were just really burned out. And we were able to bring them down here and put them in a beautiful Airbnb on the water and give them two weeks of just rest and renewal. And they wrote later and said that was the most life-giving gift we had ever received. So stuff like that, because of your aggressive generosity, we are able to make it rain, if you will, uh, on these missionaries that we are partnered with. Okay? So Paul talks about being generous towards other churches, talks about being generous towards missionary and it's a gift for us to be able to be generous. And then he talks about internal generosity, like being generous towards each other and he holds up Aquila and Prisca as an example. Look at verse 19. He said, "Now listen, read this." He says, "Aquila and Prisca together with the church in their what? house." house. Now, just let that sink in a little bit. Your weekly chores are fun enough as it is, just trying to like keep the house serviceable for your own family, right? The, ho- the churches were meeting in their home. Now, for Aquila and Prisca, this isn't like a one-off. This was their third house church. They had done it in a city prior to Corinth. And then when Paul started the church in Corinth, they worked together and they hosted it in their home. And now they're in a city called Ephesus, where Paul is now, and they're hosting another church in their home, in their house, three times over. Now listen, for the church to flourish it, in the first century, it needed open homes. Culture's different, right? Spaces like this did not really exist. They were gathering in homes. Um, they were sharing space, sharing time, sharing food, sharing their Traeger, their toys, their life, their laughter, tears, everything, right? Generosity is bigger than money. It's not less than financial support, but it's a lot bigger than. Guys, nothing has changed in 2,000 years. We have the privilege, the ability to be able to gather in spaces like this. This is a culturally accepted norm that was just not a reality in the first century. So we can do this, but this isn't enough for our family to flourish. This right here is important, but we're not sinking deep relational roots with each other right now. That's got to happen in another context. And so we're no different than the first century church. In order for our family to flourish, we need people in our family like Aquila and Prisca who are hosting Uh, our church family, portions of our family from Sunday afternoon through Saturday night, gathering in each other's homes. And so to our missional community leaders, I just want to say to you, you are our Aquila and Priscos. Your generosity causes our family to flourish. We would not flourish without your open homes. You are the heroes of our father's family and your generosity is life-giving and life-shaping. You know, whenever somebody reaches back uh, from the states or their next duty assignment to say hey man I was just thinking about pillar the other day I just want to say uh, man just express our gratitude God really used it in formative ways in our life there you know what they never say man John you're preaching dude like wow just life changing never that's fine like good I'm that's not happening they don't write back about Grant's music they don't write back about our nursery spaces or anything in, happening in the building next door nothing you know what they write back about Their involvement in missional communities being absolutely life-forming and life-giving. Guys, you, your open homes causes flourishing to happen in this family. It's life-giving and your sacrifices are worth it. I know it's hard and I know it's messy. I know it is. My wife and I have been there. Uh, Bottom line is too, we need more MCs. Rona's really kind of taking its toll on us. We had a bunch of people PCS out and a bunch of MCs kind of shut down. Uh, throughout Rona, and it's been really challenging to stand up new MCs with the ever changing restrictions and all of that. So, hopefully, as we continue to kind of slowly press out of the Rona norm and get back to some non Rona norms, bottom line is we need some MCs. So, if you like the idea of opening your home and being generous in this way, we need you. Your home is key to the flourishing of our church family. Uh, so, some, come see me. If you're Uh, interested in something like this, I would love to help you walk this out. Okay? So generous towards other churches, toward missionaries, toward our own church family. And then Paul says, I want you to recognize generous family members when you see them. Celebrate what the Father values. Verse 15, look at this. He says, you know that the household of Stephanus have devoted themselves to the service of the saints, including, so the household, if you look down a couple verses, included also Fortunatus and Achaicus. Now, I just wanna point this out because this is really important. Fortunatus, Achaicus, and Stephanus. Okay, Stephanus was a wealthy Greek man, okay? He was a wealthy Greek man. We know this by his name, we know this by, by, by the city he lived in, the household that he had. Wealthy and Greek. Fortunatus was a commonly given name to a freed slave. Fortunate, right? Fortunate one, right? That's a common name. Not Greek, likely. Definitely not wealthy. Probably a different ethnic, racial background, um, different social status, all of that. And then Achaicus, it gets even better. He's just named after the province he lived in, like probably also a freed slave, needed a name, and they're like, Where do you live? Uh, K.I. Okay, good. Achaicus, it is, right? So again, different economic stas- status, different skin color, uh, different racial background, all these things. Um, so in America, we would have a church for Fortunatus and his friends and Achaicus and his friends, and Stephanus and his people. But that's the beauty of the gospel. The the gospel breaks into a culture where we are all divided, and where we we rarely gather together because of our differences, and the gospel brings us into this family where there's one family. There's not a church for uh, Stephanus, and not a church for Fortunatus, and not a church for Achaicus. One church, one father, one savior, one spirit, one gospel, one mission, one family, and one common mission. Now, notice how Paul talks about them. He says, They have devoted themselves to service of the family. Guys, their, their family, their household, made it their mission to serve any need that existed in the life of the church. Like this was their family mission statement, if you will, it was written on the chalkboard when you came in their front door. They're like, look, you show us a need and we will either meet it ourselves or we will lead the family to meet it together. This was their life. And we know what that looks like because in our own church family, we have people like Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus. We have them. And you guys give yourselves to serving our family wherever you see need. You spin up the meal trains, you provide meals. You provide babysitting so a mom can get out and just get some, a breath of fresh air and go back and love her littles and be sane in the process. You r- make hospital trip runs and, and you run errands and uh, you take time away from your own family for the others and you, you support families in our own family that have gone down the road of adoption. You take grocery runs. Look, There's no shortage of examples. And Paul says we need to commend these people. In other words, publicly celebrate what our father values. Now, just as an aside, if this isn't a value of our family, I got to say something about need and, 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 and request, right? If, if this is the value of our family, um, God is calling you then not to be bashful or ashamed of the need that you are experiencing. I was a youth pastor for a while, and I always loved prayer time after youth group. Like, we'd, we'd come to prayer requests, I'm like, all right, go ahead, Johnny. Hands up. Oh, yeah, man. Uh, unspoken. Sweet. All right, all right, unspoken. All right, Susie, what you got? It's unspoken. Can't really say anything this week. All right, all right, no problem. That's cool, that's cool. Junior, what you got, man? It's unspoken. I can't really say anything. Guys, God's family is not an unspoken family. Like, we know need exists. We know it exists. And so God is calling us in our need to make our need known to our pastors, to your MC leaders, to each other. Listen, because, listen, if you're new to our family, people in our family actually believe that God has allowed them to prosper so they can be generous to the father's family. You gotta know that. So some of you are wrestling like with the political implications of a stymie check. Fine. Good. Wrestle with those implications. Other people in the family are like, sweet. Stymie check. We don't need it, but we know of a need in our MC, and this is going to be absolutely huge for that family, right? The gospel reorients everything. Got a tax refund coming. I don't need the tax refund. Guess what? I know of somebody else in my missional community who absolutely needs that refund for their flourishing this year, and we are going to make it rain on them. Guys, the gospel... Before the gospel, we are enslaved. Our hands close around stuff and money. The gospel gives us life and frees us and pries open our hands. So we're not reluctantly letting go now. We're like, yo, put something else in my hand so I can pop it right out and meet the need of somebody in my family. The gospel is freeing and life-giving. And there are people in our family who really believe that God is going to give them a stymie check a tax refund, a crypto gain, fill in the blank, a promotion so that they can be more generous to people in our fathers. The Guys, the gospel is absolutely beautiful. And I want to commend you because you are living this out day in and day out. And so we got to ask the question, hey, what cultivates that kind of radical generosity? Well, bottom line, the gospel, but not knowledge of the gospel, not knowing it, but experiencing it personally. Look at what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know it. You know that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich, right? Jesus rich, we're poor, Jesus generously gives us what we need for our flourishing. Now drop down in the chapter a little bit, verse 14, same same chapter, Paul says, now in the family, here's how this plays out, your abundance, if you have it, at the present time should supply those who are in need so that their abundance later on may supply your need that there may be fairness, okay? So in the gospel, Jesus, his abundance for our need, culture of his family, my abundance for your need. That generosity is rooted in the gospel. So when shaped by the Father's love, expressed through Jesus, we will be an increasingly generous family. And again, I just want to commend, you are, you are that generous family. Keep pressing in, keep being shaped by the gospel. The sky is the limit to this kind of a culture and it is absolutely uh, life-giving. And guys, so affirming because again, This generosity is one of the greatest signs that our hearts, that we have actually been adopted in. We're rescued rebels and our hearts are being reshaped by the gospel. This generosity is a sign that you have been an adopted in son or daughter. You don't earn anything from God because of it, but it is a demonstration that he has reshaped and is reshaping your lives. And guys, it is so deeply encouraging to be part of a church family that for five years has been radically generous in this way. We don't ever have to preach it, like commanding it. We don't ever have to ask for it. It flows out of your heart like you have a waterfall, an unending waterfall of God's riches pouring into your life. And you make it rain on people in need all the time. And it's beautiful. I just want to affirm that in you. All right, we got generosity And true to form, I'm just trying to be generous with my words, okay? So now i got to shorten that up, and let's move into relationship. Second theme in the chapter is meaningful relationship. That is, the Father's love will increasingly lead us out of isolation, like isolation by ourselves, isolation as a church family. um, It's going to lead us into meaningful relationships with other people. And he's going to talk, it's kind of rapid fire. He's going to talk about other churches. He's going to talk about saying no to a bunch of people so we can say yes in a meaningful way to a few. He's going to talk actually about relating with your pastor. That's my favorite part. We'll get there in a little bit. He's going to talk about, um, man, the unity of our church over preferences, our relationship with Jesus, and so on. So let's hit this one. Meaningful relationship with other churches. Uh, Notice back in verses three and four, uh, Paul's going to talk about this, that Man, this meaningful relationship thing is not just with other churches who are like us, that they look like us or sound like us, but with churches who are very much unlike us. Look at verse three and four. What does he want them to do with the gift that they're raising for the church in Jerusalem? How does he want it to get to Jerusalem? How does he want it to go? Yo, you guys take it yourself. I want you to take it, right? So there's no lip service. Paul's actually saying, I want you to raise the money, and then I want you to take the money personally and deliver it to Jerusalem. So no lip service. They couldn't just drop a check in the mail. They couldn't use Zelle or PayPal or just wire an EFT. He wanted them to go personally. Not the whole family, of course, but he wanted the church family to send some messengers. He didn't want them to just hang a magnet on the fridge, like, you know, church in Jerusalem, like, look, we're sponsoring them for $17 a month so they can have school books and food, right? Not that thing either, like deeply personal where they've actually met each other. Now, this was calling for them to sacrifice in a couple ways. First of all, it's a long trip. If they were going to take this trip by sea, it's days, probably weeks, and it's a dangerous journey. If they're going to take the trip by land, it's at least, it's weeks. I mean, it's multiple weeks and it's a dangerous, dangerous trip. So Paul, through this sacrifice, is calling them to, a prior, to prioritize relationship. We're not just giving gifts. We're entering into meaningful relationships with people. Now, even more significantly, the church in Corinth is primarily Gentile, non-Jewish. And again, the church in Jerusalem, as you can deduce on your own, primarily Jewish, non-Gentile. So again, outside of Jesus, these people would have nothing to do with each other. There's, as the Bible would describe, a wall of hostility between them. And guys, we see that in our culture today. There are walls of hostility between different people groups, whether it's culture, skin color, whatever it is, those walls of hostility exist, right? They exist. The gospel tells us that through his death, Jesus tears down those walls of hostility. He brings us together in himself before the Father. So some would say, right, we'd sit there and say, well, it's enough that we just preach the gospel. It's enough that we just say the wall's torn down, Um, uh, people will come together if we just say that thing, if we just say that message. But here we, say, here we see what Paul's doing is, no, it's not enough to just preach the gospel. That is not enough. You preach it and you practice. It's both and. You preach and you practice. And in the practicing, Paul says, you initiate. You don't wait for the person who's different than you to come to you, right? Let's just say hypothetically, fortunatus, and Achaicus, and Stephanus had separate churches, and Paul entered into that, and he was counseling them. No, yo, in Christ, we're one. In Christ, we come together. Uh, He would never just encourage them to wait and see who would take the next move. He would command all three of them to take the first move and initiate that relationship. That's what he's doing here Paul says, dog, look, you go, you initiate, you step into their world, you build the relationship, you enter into their experience with empathy and generosity. Don't dismiss their suffering, don't deny their suffering exists, don't don't even tell them how to fix their suffering, be generous toward their suffering. You enter in and alleviate it. We know Jesus' work created one family. There's one father, one spirit, one mission. And if that's true, then why do our churches tend to be so divided? And Paul's solution to this is, look, you go, you be with them for their good, like family. You have a need, uh, they can give, you receive it. Uh, they have needs, we can give. Let's be humble enough to admit need and, re- and, and receive from each other. And guys, we have got to learn from this picture in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. Because the father never intended disconnection based on region or race, but he intended union in Jesus, one family. And so Paul is calling them. That's the gospel preached or proclaimed. Now let's be practitioners of that gospel and initiate and step in. And Paul's working to connect churches and bring them together all the time. Look, you see it later in the letter, verses 19 to 20. Look at, look at how he kind of wraps this thing up. He's like, yo, the churches of Asia send you greetings. That'd be like saying the churches of Okinawa or uh, whatever state you're happening from. Churches, churches of California send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, they send you hearty greetings in the Lord. And listen, by the way, all the brothers, all of them send you greetings. Guys, bottom line is the Father's love for us will lead us to pursue meaningful relationships with other churches. We will not sit back and wait. And we will not settle for uh, division that exists where it should not. We will. You know why Paul would, would. You know why Paul was so passionate about that. Paul could see past the resurrection, like we talked about last week. One family, um, one very diverse family in one gathering, worshiping Jesus. And so then he walks it back into real time and says, "Hey, we're not here yet, but we until Jesus returns with everything that we are gonna that we have in us." We are going to press toward that future reality of what Jesus says the church will look like, and we will do everything we can to make it real uh, in this time and in our generation. All right, we've got to keep pressing. The next thing we're going to see is Paul uh, is going to help us learn how to say no to a lot of things and people so we can say a meaningful yes to a few. Look at verses 6 and 7. Paul says, look, I'm coming, and I don't, I don't want to just see you in passing. Like I just want to pop in and out. I want to spend some time with you, he says. See that? He says, I hope to spend time with you. That word is loaded with, I'm going to be with you in person, face-to-face, eye-to-eye, over your dinner table, time with you. In verses 8 and 9, we know that he's writing from Ephesus, where he's choosing to remain because of what he calls a wide door for effective work that had opened to him. In other words, God was allowing him to connect very meaningful, meaningfully through the gospel in relational ways with people in Ephesus. Now notice what else is going on in Ephesus, even though there's a wide door. What's he say? Many adversaries, right? Let's just pick on this for a minute because too many of us, um, when we try to discern God's will, we're like, well, if God wants me to do something, there will be this wide open door with no like pushback, no opposition, no adversaries, right? Like we kind of, and then we're, we're in a situation where like we, we interpret it differently. Like, well, there's opposition. This probably then is not God's way. It's probably telling me to go towards the open door, right? Or or some of us are like, ah, opposition. This is the way I go, right? We all interpret it a little bit differently. Guys, it's not that clean. Life's messy. It's not cut and dry, God wanted him in Ephesus. He did give him a wide open door. But even in the midst of the wide open door, he's got a ton of opposition there, okay? So I just want us to see that in the text. But Paul's choosing to be in Ephesus. And by choosing to be in Ephesus, he's saying no to the people in Corinth and everywhere else. And then he's like, yo, um, around Pentecost, which just means in late spring, in late spring, I'm going to come to you and spend some time with you. But for Paul to spend time with people in Corinth, it means... He's got to say no to everyone else in every other city for a season. And we're seeing a principle here, guys, that we have a hard time with in our modern day. And that is this, to be in one place means you can't be in another. We hate that. But just let that sink in for a minute. To be in one place as a human being means that you cannot be in another. And that's okay. God's okay with that. Paul was okay with it and we need to be okay with it. In fact, there's real value and real freedom in being able to say, I am all in in this place I'm in right now, and that just means I cannot be relationally in these other places, and that's good, and it's for a season. We need to learn to be able to say no for a season for the good of a few. We need more sustained and meaningful time with less people, not more people. You don't need more people. We need fewer people and fewer apps We're broad enough. We go wide enough, too wide in our culture. We need to narrow it down so we can go deeper with people. Saying no to more so that we can say a more meaningful yes to a few. Talking about face-to-face time, shoulder-to-shoulder time, across dinner tables. And so here's the question. What would it look like if we believed this so deeply that, for example, we began eliminating the apps, which presently fill our time with, we'll just call it solo scrolling, Let's say we eliminated those and replaced them only with apps which help us communicate directly with people. Just those. I dare you. Do it this afternoon. And then you get a counselor tomorrow because you're going to need one. But honestly, how significant of a step is that? That's not really that big a deal. It's become a big deal to us, but it shouldn't be. How, what would it look like actually if we just, like, look, I'm going to put my phone down and put it away for a day at a time, two days at a time? Whatever, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to delete all the apps from my phone. I'll keep it because I know people need to call me, chain of command and all that. I got to email, whatever. But I'll get rid of everything else. I'm going to say no to a bunch of these good things for the very specific purpose of being able to say yes to a few people for their good. What would it look like if we believed this so deeply that for long stretches of time, we would focus on being with people, with them in flesh and blood. And we would arrange our lives that way. Guys, I think the Father's love through the gospel leads us to say no to a lot so that we can say a more meaningful yes to a few. And that's a gift. It's not a burden. All right, now Timothy, my favorite portion here. Uh, Paul's going to help us learn about relating with our pastors. Uh, notice verse 10, verse 10 and 11. Kind of got three big ideas here for your relationship with your pastor. Uh, verse 10 says, put him at ease, put him at ease. So put me at ease. I don't really know what that means exactly. Put put me at ease. But it says, put him at ease among you. Uh, What Paul's saying is, look, Timothy's there on behalf of God. And since he's there on behalf of God as a pastor, he's going to have to say some hard things to you. Uh, Anytime anybody speaks on behalf of God, they're going to have to say hard things, whether they want to or not. Like, they're going to challenge us, right, from the word. So... um, Put him at ease means to receive the reality that he's there on behalf of God's work and and to receive it that way. Verse 11 says, let no one despise him. In other words, don't reject him because of this. Don't reject him and don't reject what he says. Uh, Verse 11 also says, help him on his way in what? Do you see the word? Help him on his way in peace, right? In peace. That's all right. Hey, the more Bible, the better. Peace. So three big ideas as it relates to your relationships with your pastors. Uh, put them at ease. In other words, just recognize that they're, they're in your life on behalf of God, right? They're communicating to you on behalf of God. Uh, put them at ease. Don't reject them when they have to say difficult things to you, like uh, as a family or maybe even in private. Don't reject them. And um, uh, so in other words, basically what we're saying is don't go to somebody else who's just going to tell you what you want to hear, which is our tendency. Like be willing to sit under hearing hard things that maybe make you uncomfortable or you think you disagree with. Wrestle with those things and be peaceful about it. So listen, a couple words about pastors. No pastor is perfect. No pastor deserves a pedestal. No pastor deserves unchecked authority. No, every pastor needs accountability. From every pastoral team, there should be 100% transparency, nothing hidden, Guys, if there's anything hidden in a culture of a church, like when you PCS here, right, and you're looking for new churches, if there's anything hidden in that culture, either something really unhealthy and anti-gospel is already going on, or it will. It's just a matter of time. Transparency is such a a gospel, gospel principle, okay? So no pastor's perfect. No pastor belongs on a pedestal. No unchecked authority. They need accountability. They need to be accessible, and there needs to be transparency. So no fanboys. Don't be a fanboy, don't be a fangirl. No fanboys of pastors. But on the flip side, here's, here's the other extreme our culture goes to. Like some of us rush to be in fanboys. Uh, we all go through that stage. We all go through that stage. But then the other stage that we go through is we're just a skeptic. We're a cynic. Like we're listening for things we disagree with, we are skeptical of a pastor's love for Jesus or fidelity to the Word, or maybe he's sneaking something in, or maybe he cares more about the culture and less about Christ. Right? We become this. We get a cynical heart. We get a skeptical heart where we're questioning everything. And God, Paul's calling us back to this gospel center where we receive him and we recognize God-given responsibility. We expect him to. To, to say hard things, but I'll also recognize he's not perfect. He's not on a pedestal. He does need to be accountable. There is transparency, no unchecked authority, all these things. So look, I'm going to say stuff you disagree with. It's going to happen. I'm going to say stuff you don't like. And the bottom line is, if you've been around for any length of time, there are things about me that you don't like. And I'm, like, I'm sorry. I don't do any of those things on purpose, I don't think, but it's just, it's just us. We're people, right? I mean, you could have only just been visiting this morning and already there are things about me that you don't like. I'm sorry, right? Part of life. But what Paul's saying is you might disagree, you might dislike some stuff about him, but don't allow those disagreements or the things that you dislike to be elevated to the point where you doubt his love for Jesus, or you doubt his fidelity to the gospel, or you doubt his motives to serve Jesus' family. Don't reject him. Pray for him. If you think you disagree, go talk to him and ask ask questions. Don't lead with accusations. Ask questions and go for clarity guard the peace of the relationships, work at this thing, pray, submit to his responsibility to teach and shepherd. And the sad reality is this church likely did not follow Paul's command because we know this from second Corinthians, Paul's plans did not unfold as described in this letter. In fact, he had to pay a short kind of unannounced emergency visit to this church, which would tell us that probably Timothy's visit to them went all kinds of sideways. They probably rejected his pastoral ministry, rejected the stuff that he had to say. There was no people. Like it was bad. So Paul had to go himself. And then the way Paul describes his visit, he describes it as short and painful. So not only did they reject Timothy in this way, they were rejecting Paul in this way as well. And guys, I just want, again, to affirm you. There's so much to affirm in you as a family from this passage. That has never been my experience with you. And I speak, I'm not a solo pastor. We have a team of pastors here. So I just speak on behalf of our team. That has never been our experience with you. You guys know we're not perfect, but you show us grace. You affirm us with kindness. You pray for us when we say something you may not like or you disagree with or you're confused by. Um, maybe there's gossip. I don't really know about it, like, so don't tell me. But, like, but you come to me, you come to our other pastors, and we have good conversations, and that's right. And we don't agree on everything, and that's also right, that's good. Uh, but yet we still assume the best of each other. Again, it's not a pedestal. It's not fanboy, but we're just saying we give each other the benefit of the doubt, even in disagreement, that I love Jesus and you love Jesus. We both love the gospel. We may understand some things differently, but we both love the gospel. And our motive is to see God's family flourish. Guys, I have consistently year in and year out received that kind of a posture from you, and so, has our, so have our other pastors. So I just want to affirm that it is an absolute joy to pastor you, and to serve as as one of the pastoral team, So thank you. Just from the bottom of my heart, thank you. It, it, I read story after story or blog after blog where that is just not the case. Um, church cultures can be really unhealthy and really anti-gospel, and it's just never been my experience with you, family, and it means a lot. And, uh, a, a little a little pivot here, still talking about pastors, but Paul's going to help us see that unity of church matters more than our preferences. And check this out. Verse 12, he says, like, now concerning Apollos. Now, remember earlier in our study, Apollos was their preferred pastor. They wanted Apollos preaching. Like, you would rather have Ron Koya up here and get a normal sermon length and get out of here and get on your day. And Ron, like, give us Ron. Sit John down, give us Ron. So he, they wanted Apollos. No more Paul. They wanted Apollos. But check this out, Paul's not threatened by that. He's got nothing to guard, nothing to protect. In fact, what does he do? He encourages Apollos to go visit. Go, he goes, or he encourages him. He's got nothing to protect, and check it out. How does Apollos respond? He doesn't accept the invitation. He declines it. In other words, Apollos is not about building a fan base. He doesn't need a platform. He doesn't need more followers or more likes. There's no competition between he and Paul. They're not building individual careers here. And guys, we can really learn from this. Because man, our culture can be really toxic when it comes to the church and pastors and platforms and fanboys and all this kind of thing. Listen, it's from one pastor or just from a pastor's perspective. Don't trust a competitive pastor. Don't trust one. Don't trust a church that is built on the personality of a pastor. Even if it's a good personality or teaching style, don't trust a pastor who builds a brand or a platform. Don't trust a, quote, ministry leader who's not connected with a local church. If there's a popular ministry leader on social media and they are not connected to a local church don't i'm just don't trust that person don't trust well let's make it stated positively trust pastors who publicly share their space with other teachers and other leaders trust pastors who lead as part of a team and not solo efforts trust pastors who Don't take absolute authority for themselves. Take trust pastors who invite accountability. Trust pastors who give transparency. Trust pastors who speak well of other pastors in other churches. Trust pastors who are gentle and kind and gracious towards those with whom they may disagree, especially other churches and especially other denominations. Don't listen to pastors or bloggers or internet sensations or whatever we want to call them, uh, social media influencers. Don't listen to those Christians online or pastors who consistently attack and or accuse or undermine other pastors or churches. They're out there. There are people who are constantly looking for false teaching. They're going to be like, false teacher, false teacher, false teacher, false teacher. And while there's a place for discernment, guys, don't submit yourself to that kind of teaching. You will become that person. And Jesus said the church already has one accuser. His name's Satan. Guys, we've got to be very careful here. And we can learn a lot from Paul and Apollos and their relationship with the church, where Paul's like, yo, dog, you go. And Paul's like, nah, I'm good. I don't need it. I don't need the platform, okay? All right. Importantly now, as we begin to wrap it up, Paul's going to focus on our relationship with Jesus and with each other. Verse 13, he says, now listen, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men. Sounds like a statement just for men. It's not. He's writing to men and women. Um, act like men would kind of be a cultural uh, a figure of speech for saying, let's, let's be adults about this. Let's be mature. Like Be men and women about this. Let's be mature, Okay. Um, so be watchful, stand firm in the faith, be mature, uh, be an adult about this, and be, be strong. Now, in the hands of religion or a gospel-deficient church, that becomes a list that is nothing but pure moralism, right? A good Christian does is watchful. To be a better Christian, you've got to stand firm, I have got to act like a man, and be strong. But these are deeply relational commands. It's not pointing to, do, to a to-do list. It's pointing to an identity in Jesus. See, that, those words, stand firm in the faith... That's just a relational statement. The way we stand firm in the faith is to realize that we can't stand firm and we just depend entirely on Jesus, okay? Stand firm in the faith. It's not something to do. It's not a list. But too many of us come from cultures of Christianity that we associate relating with Jesus as little more than doing. We get a sermon, they're like, all right, I learned this new thing that I have to do. I've got a new list of things to do to be a good Christian or to make God happy. That's not what stand firm in the faith means, it's not what it means. Here's what it means. Uh, I got a friend by the name of Wes Coddington. We were church planting together at the same t- not together, but in the same city in, um, in California a couple of years ago. He's a church planting coach now, not a church planner, but he's coaching church planners. Uh, a couple of months ago, maybe a year ago now, he found out that he was diagnosed with terminal cancer, a very aggressive form of cancer. And he's, I mean, he's maybe down to weeks, a couple of months now, maybe at the most. And here's what he said. Here's what Wes said recently. In, in his blog, he said, I'm trying to learn to be Wes rather than to be the list of things Wes gets done. The problem for most of us is our Christianity has become that list of things that we do or that we don't do, while the Father wants us to stand firm in the faith, meaning that we learn to be the son or the daughter that we are in Jesus. And when that is our focus, we will be an exceptionally life-giving place. And you are, and I believe you're doing this. Look at this, verse 17 and 18, back to Stephanus and his gang. He said, "'They refreshed my spirit as well as yours.'" Guys, when we are standing firm in the faith, like all in on Jesus, right, we will become the kind of people, the kind of church family that is refreshing other people um, in their spirits, like in deep, meaningful ways. Guys, what would it look like if we made this our personal, personal mission as a family to say, I exist. I am going to gather with my church family now for this reason. God Please help me exist with my family in a way that is refreshing to their spirits. Not what I get out of this, but I have received so much from you and your love. Help me to love others in this way. All right, Paul, close it up. I'm going to close it up. Verses 21 to 23 says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. So he, he doesn't write his own letters. He uses a scribe, but this is so meaningful to him now. He rips the pen or pencil out of his scribe's hand. He's like, I got this. I got some words that need to come from my heart. I write this, own, this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, you're cursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you in Christ Jesus. Amen. Guys, you need somebody like Paul who will say those words to you in person and write them in a text or a letter or an email to you on the regular. And we, as we're shaped by the gospel, will become the kind of people who will say those three things to the people we're in relationship with. with. Look, he speaks truth first. He says, dog, you're cursed if you don't love Jesus. We know that's true, but our hearts still run. We need men and women in our lives who say, John, don't. Don't make that choice. Don't. You know you're cursed the minute you walk away from. You know there's nothing but death apart from Jesus. Don't walk away. Rather focus on his return. Come Lord Jesus. We're saying like focus on Jesus return. Live in light of his return. Don't walk away. We need somebody saying that to us on the regular. That's a hard truth to say, right? But Paul says it with grace. Look at it. he says the grace of the Lord of Jesus be with you. This is Paul's way of saying I don't want you to be accursed. I want you to know joy. I want your heart to be glad. I want you to, res- to, be, to be knowing uh, grace from Jesus daily. And he says it in love. Look, my love be with you. I love you. Guys, this is an old dude who's writing these words down. Guys, can I just ask you, men, men, just men for a minute. When's the last time you looked another man in, your, in, in the eyes, a man with whom you're not related, not your dad, not your brothers, not your sons, you looked him in the eye and said, I love you. I love you. When's the last time we looked each other in the eye and said, dog, don't go down that way. You know, that's an, that's a cursed way to go. Stay close to Jesus. When's the last time we wrapped our arms around another dude pre COVID and whispered in his ear, dog, I love you. I love you like a brother, right? Do we say these things to each other? Do we communicate these? Are we writing these kinds of texts and letters? And the question is, if we're not, why? Why not? The answer is simpler than we want it to be, and it's more painful than we want it to be. If we are not, it's because the gospel is not shaping our lives in this way. It's because we're not standing firm in our faith with Jesus. When we are, we will increasingly be in relationship with people where we will communicate these very three things to each other, and we'll submit submit ourselves To these kinds of relationships all right your eyes are looking at me and saying I love you just finish this thing up so that's what I'm going to (laughs) do let me just close with a quote from my friend Wes he just blogged this uh, uh, earlier this week Wes wrote this he said man when you think about it is your life really any different than mine we all have limited time we all live with limitations we all make choices as to what we will and won't do The fact that I have been given an expiration date seems to make it more pronounced in my life, but I am no different than anyone else. What if we woke up each day with the idea that we only had 40 days left on earth? How would that change our decisions? Who would we pursue? What accomplishments would fade away as we look more intently at our limited time? Guys, I think Paul is asking us the same questions that Wes is asking in his blog. With an eye on the resurrection, what if we woke up each day with the idea that we only had 40 days left on earth, how would that change our decisions, and who would we pursue? And what we see in the text this morning is, if we're serious about that, we will, we will, we will lean in meaningfully with relationship, and generosity will define our lives. Grant's going to come now as one of our pastors and lead us in a prayer of confession, Um, I know what I need to confess. I don't know what you need to confess, but I do know the Holy Spirit will reveal that to you. So as a family now, let's just have a heart-to-heart with our dad.